Welcome to Across the Margin, the podcast, where we take you beyond the margin, behind the scenes of the online magazine, and deeper into the stories. I'm your host, Michael Shields, and before we get going, I do want to mention once again that this podcast is part of the Osiris Network. Osiris is a growing community of arts, music, and culture podcasts, connecting fans of the arts like you with conversation, commentary, and a whole slew of captivating podcasts. Check out OsirisPod.com for more great podcast. So I have a great podcast for you today. I'm real excited about this. It's um, uh, We're going to be talking about borders today and uh, specifically the uh, investigative documentary video series uh, entitled Borders that, it, that investigates life at the edge of nations. It's a series hosted by impassioned Emmy-nominated producer Johnny Harris, who I was lucky enough to speak to in an interview that's, uh, that I'm going to have for you here in a moment. Borders features stories from six borders around the world, examining the human stories behind physical and political borders, and how the lines used to apportion the planet play a decisive role in the past, present, and future of millions, billions, billions actually, of lives. Uh, Their tagline is pretty poignant. If you want to know a country's deepest fear, look at its borders. I was first put onto the Borders series by my little brother, he annually travels uh, to Haiti in, in uh, humanitarian aid. He, he heads down there, um, I believe, with his church. Uh, and he's always coming back, telling me stories, um, just, you know, just how, how troubling some of the things he comes upon down there. He's always trying to teach and educate um, me and, and anyone in his life about what's happening down there. And so one night he actually shared with me uh, the first episode of the Border series, which which highlights Haitian and Dominican Republic relations. Uh, and it focuses in on this busy market economy on their borders where tensions rise when, when Haitians attempt to cross and sell their goods uh, and, and they're denied or you know, oppressed in different ways. And, um, and within minutes of watching, I was floored. And, uh, it, and, and that very evening, I, I fell into a deep and profoundly uh, affecting and, uh, and ultimately important whole, um, reeling through all six episodes uh, in a row. They're about 15 minutes each um, and just packed with information. And, and, um, and uh, one, one's at the border of North Korea and Japan. Another deals with Spain and Morocco. Uh, one is about China and Nepal. Um, there's one about the Arctic Circle and, and um, uh, this Norwegian group of islands between the mainland and, and Norway and the North Pole. Uh, it, it focuses in a lot about um, Russia and, and their priorities there. It's, it's wild. And then there's one about uh, the United States, Mexico, and Central America. That's, that's incredibly relevant to a lot of the news we hear today. But, um, but I wasn't just floored by all these stories. It was, it was 
Johnny's personal reflections, the host, Johnny Harris, who's with us here today, uh, his personal reflections, the cinematography uh, of the whole thing, which he's um, which he's involved with. He takes he's not only a journalist, he's he's um, he's well versed in production and uh, he's it's amazing uh, how he pieces those two worlds together and um, and gets it done. So. Uh, I believe the stories that are told on borders are entirely important, can can help all of us better understand the world around us, and and in a way that in 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 a way that could potentially um, lead to some positive changes. It, it's really eye opening, and um, because of that, I, I just really I I needed to talk to Johnny. I hunted him down, and um, and I am I'm entirely uh, privileged to share my interview with Johnny Harris. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for making the time amid, uh, amid all your travel, your work. I uh, truly appreciate it. Uh, yeah, well, I'm very happy to be here. Fantastic. Um, I was wondering if you could start by telling us a little bit about yourself and your background that that le- leads you, you know, gives you this unique skill set as both a videographer and in film production and in being so informed with complex foreign policy to be able to tell these stories so effectively. Yeah, so I started um, video when I was a kid. You know, I mm-hmm. grew up always with a camcorder and stuff, and that was always an interest, um, making videos at home and such. Um, when I got into college, I started to think of video as like a childhood thing that I you know, wasn't going to ever really pursue. Mm-hmm. I kind of dabbled in one film class my freshman year of college, and it was a lot about you know critique and theory, and it wasn't about you know, having your hands on the camera. And that kind of just turned me off of, of cinematography and, and film altogether. And I was like, well, this was a fun thing when I was a kid. Yeah. It's time to like grow up and study <laughs> some adult thing. And, mm-hmm. that, and, and that was international relations for me. Um, You've always been fascinated I, with, with, yeah, uh, yeah. I, I, and I didn't even know if I was fascinated. Mm-hmm. It just sounded so cool. Yeah, it was absolutely. just like international. Yeah. And I didn't, I knew nothing. You know, it sounds like travel like I, would be, would be involved yeah, exactly. right there. It sounds yep. like, Oh, do you travel full time? If you're an international relations <laughs> person, mm-hmm. like little and did that you know. was my impulse was like, I want to do this strictly because it sounds good. Yeah. So I studied international relations and realized I actually really liked it. It was a really interesting it's uh, learning about foreign policy and things. And then, um, when I got out to DC, I realized that there were so many, uh, other international relations graduates mm-hmm. who were way smarter and way more connected <laughs> and way better than me mm. that I was not going to find a job being like, I'm just another of the million international relations students coming to DC. So, so that is when I started to really tap in to the video skills and, mm. and I had been kind of cultivating them as a, as a side hobby, yeah. um, on side and same with graphics and motion graphics and mm-hmm. animation and stuff. I'd always kind of played around with that stuff as a hobby. But now I was in a situation where, out of survival, I had to use those skills in order to get a job. And and that's kind of why there's this weird hybrid of, like, international affairs mixed with these technical skills. It was almost out of survival, out of supply and demand. There just wasn't any... Um, there, there wasn't. There was too much supply of international relations yeah. people, and not enough of video. Yeah. And so I, I pivoted because of that. Yeah. No, and it's amazing how you married them um, together, and especially for this project. And uh, like, like I was telling you before we even started this, 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 um, this, this, this series really affected me. It's really, uh, it was eye opening, and I, I've learned so much. And 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 That's I just, great to hear. yeah. And uh, how did it come about? I've, I've been personally fascinated with like the imaginary lines that divide us and. And I was wondering where you got the the idea um, 
to tell these affecting stories of the of the turmoil that exists at these uh, these manufactured lines. Yeah, so I think it started. I think there are two. Looking back, there are two huge influences that led to me deciding that Borders was the theme or the rapper that I wanted to pursue for a mm-hmm. while. And the first one, and the most obvious one, was my time. I lived in Mexico for a while. I was, a, I was actually a Mormon missionary, grew up Mormon. And so I, I went on a mission mm-hmm. uh, like in, halfway into college, and, and I was assigned to go to Tijuana, uh, which is right on a very contentious border. Yeah, in fact, I, it's the biggest well. border crossing in the world. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like yeah. there's so many people and so much militarization. And I lived just a, a few blocks from the border wall for a long time. And oh, wow. just seeing that wall, that dramatic wall, you know, the old wall that was built in, you know, maybe the 80s or something, and mm-hmm. then the new one that was built in the in the Bush administration, yeah. um, it's so much bigger and it's just like so, it just feels like, like a cartoon it's just so yeah. big and so dramatic and it goes on for so many miles you, you can't even see the end of it mm-hmm. that really affected me from a visual just a purely visual visceral standpoint sense, i yeah. looked at that and just said what is this that we draw lines put up these big physical barriers and say this is mine. you were born on that side yeah. and you can't touch the soil on this side mm-hmm. because it's not yours that really really affected me and made me think a lot um and then, of course, I was there for two years listening to people's stories about how that line affected them yeah. and being deported and trying to go back and forth and the, and the interesting and crazy things that happened there. So that mm-hmm. was the first kind of main one. The next one was when in some uh, political science class in college, we were reading this book or an excerpt from this book called Imagined Communities. Uh, I think it's Benedict uh, Benedict. Arnold, maybe? Mm-hmm. I forgot the name of yeah. the guy. He's like this big scholar who does um, work on identity and nationalism. And mm-hmm. his whole theory is is that this is one big psychology play that like we as humans identify oh. with these other humans that we don't actually know because of these imagined lines that have been created. And that really fascinated me too, the notion of shared identity with strangers because of arbitrary decisions made by someone else, yeah. you know, thousands of years ago or hundreds of years ago, whatever it was. So all of that together said, I need to interrogate this more. Um, I think that the, the impetus that started the interest in doing a series on borders mm-hmm. was this surge in recent years of nationalism around the world yeah. and borders yeah. really, really in a, in a time of globalization, borders are having a big comeback. Absolutely. Uh, fortified borders, mm-hmm. nationalistic identity, mm-hmm. uh, xenophobia, all these things yeah. that just felt right and so when it was time to make a series you know i had to make a series on something i said borders is my thing and that, that i think all of those ingredients were in the mix when i when i decided that yeah it's amazing how uh timely your series is and also i mean it was taped and and released um you know what, what was it like the end december yeah yeah like yeah. in basically the end of October through the end of November. So yeah, and, the end of last year. And a year. lot of uh, the current events that, that um, are even coming up today, I just kept thinking back to your series and different things that were going on with uh, the immigration train. And we'll get to that as we walk, walk through the, the episodes. But speaking of the episodes, I was, I'm very curious how you went about selecting. Uh, there's six episodes in this first mm-hmm. series, and um, so six different locations. And how'd you go about choosing which locations uh, you would be telling stories from? It's a, an excruciating experience to say, <laughs> pick six stories and you have the entire globe yep, yep, to, to choose, choose from. Yeah. And like that, that actually, 
was a curse of abundance that I wish there was some constraint on, honestly, because yeah. there, there's just too many, too many good ideas. So, Definitely. Um, well, we need more the series first, then. Yeah, more, exactly. More Maybe I just need to keep doing this, like, yeah, this for the rest please. of my life and, like, not, and just like scratch the surface yep. of interesting border cases. Mm-hmm. Um, so there were a few that came out of the blue that were just ones I stumbled on and just said, this feels totally right. Yeah. Um, from a personal kind of disposition standpoint, but me thinking this feels like a, a visual story, something that I can point a camera at and not just talk about in words, but, but actually show visuals. That's mm-hmm. a huge guiding principle. Yeah. Um, and then the, the aesthetic, you know, I'm a very, I, I, I prioritize the texture and the visual texture of, the work I do and uh, I, and it, and that to maybe some journalists would those considerations would feel like oh that's not relevant to the yeah. story to me the contrast of being in the Arctic to going to Haiti to going mm-hmm. to the Himalaya to going to Japan like all these places felt very different they felt diverse not just from a cultural standpoint but from a texture from a, an aesthetic standpoint yeah. that really fueled my fire too I want this to be a smattering of interesting cultures and places yeah um, and then the other thing we did is we, uh, when we announced it, we called out for stories. We wanted people oh. to submit. And so we That's actually cool. got, the, if you watch the original announcement mm-hmm. video, it's called, Where Should We Send Johnny Next? Oh, and, I haven't seen that. Yeah. announcement of Borders. And, and that was, there was a link in that description to say, submit your ideas. Mm-hmm. And so we got 6,000 story oh ideas, goodness. Borders, which was, again, an, a curse of abundance. Yes, exactly. A little, little too much to sit there. to go through them all. Uh-huh. But but through some, you know, searching and, and command F to look for like the keywords that I was looking for, yeah. I was able to find some really cool ideas as well and fortify the ideas that I already had that others had submitted. Um, and so all of that together, I mean, it was a case by case by case, pitching ideas, mm-hmm. getting feedback from editors, things like that, that eventually we whittled down into these. these. Some were just like a very clear yes, like that's easy. Yeah. That's like a very natural borders. It has the visual element. Um, go. The others were more deliberation. There was a lot of ideas that didn't make it through yeah. you know, over the bar of, of of the editors, and and but eventually we settled on those six. Well, yeah, well, uh, excellent choices. They're all. I mean, each one uh, is is quite a journey. And if we could, I'd like to walk through the episodes a little bit, just kind of give uh, mm-hmm. my listeners, our listeners, uh, a taste of, of what these episodes have to offer. And the first one that you uh, released was about Haiti and the Dominican Republic. And um, yeah. uh, it was absolutely remarkable that how these two countries, um, how different they are and, and that they share the same island. And as you point out, if you're born in Haiti, you are two and a half times more likely to die as a baby than if you're born in the Dominican. And you'll be almost 10 times poorer and you can expect to have a much shorter life. And, and uh, the question you pose is how did the line, which is the border, create two totally different worlds. And I, um, I don't expect you to expound in detail, but I was wondering if you could speak on on the complexities of the answer to that, the, the yeah. many factors that led to this situation. Yeah. The big takeaway from that story, mm-hmm. and it was it's a great case study because it is one island that has two totally different outcomes. And so you can kind of study it in this, in this interesting comparative way. Mm-hmm. The big takeaway is that Colonialism, we talk about it as one big thing. Colonialism is when you know, European nations go out and take over other nations and like that's it. What I learned in that story is that not all colonialism or imperialism is created equal. Yeah. There, there are very different ways in which uh, massive, powerful nations go and exploit or settle in or invest in 
other places around the world. Mm-hmm. And so the, the project of colonialism, especially in the 1700s, you know, post-Columbus days of discovering the new world, those provide so many different examples of how Spain and Portugal and France and the UK uh, exploited these places. And what I learned is that the way France treated Haiti uh, versus how Spain treated mm-hmm. what is now the Dominican Republic made all the difference. Yeah. Uh, France exploited the land, exploited the people, brought in a ton of slaves, mm-hmm. just used it as a commodity, whereas Spain invested its people, invested its cultural capital, invested in marrying with the locals, all of these things. Mm-hmm. It's not by any means they were not benevolent you know, colonizers, yeah. but they did things differently, and they set up a more sustainable economy and political system that gave uh, the Dominican Republic a much better chance of surviving yep. than Haiti, which was basically uh, set out for failure from the beginning because of the situation. There's a ma- many other specifics that contribute to that that I go into in the video, but to me that was a big theme in the whole thing. Yeah, that kind of set the foundation for, for you know, kind of how things went awry. And I think it would be remiss to say that uh, Haiti, when it became the first black republic, uh, you know, the world isolating them because they were a black republic and, and racism, the racism involved and and, and everything yep. like that. Um, the episode centers on a, on a border market. Um, it's established between the two nations to give vendors from both sides a place to trade on equal footing. But what we find out is that it's, it's far from equal. And were you... Um, really surprised about what you found about found when you came upon this market and, and just how you know Haitians were being treated and, and how that was taking place yeah I actually when I went to that market I, w- I was looking specifically for examples of cooperation that was oh. truly my angle like wow. I went that's to fascinating to hear because they've that, been like there still is you know cross-cultural cooperation and yep. there's this interesting kind of place where they go and and yeah, I, I went on this nighttime journey on these boats. Uh, yeah, to seven hours, right? With all these women. What's that? Was it seven hours that trip or something? Yeah, it was, yeah I know it was, it was lengthy. The craziest. Yeah, we got on these old rickety boats yeah. that were made out of wood and and sailed because there was a mountain range that they couldn't have. You know, they couldn't drive over. Okay, I was wondering. And so about. we went through the night to basically. We couldn't go during the day because it was too hot. Mm-hmm. So it was like we'd have to go in the night and. It was just, it was crazy. So yeah, we went through the night, arrive at four in the morning, walk to the border, and there's this market that the Dominicans control. It was set up to be this like binational, you know, transitory place, but it turns into this place where actually the the Dominican border guards set it up so that the Dominicans can enter first and set up in the best stalls and have yeah. the best opportunity to start buying and selling. And then once that's all happened, they let the Haitians in to come by and sell. And it's just an example of how an already kind of uh, under, pretty much underdeveloped people have just been kind of continued or exacerbated in a trajectory that they've already been set by, you know, much older forces. True, true. Kick them when they're down in some ways. It's, yeah, exactly. that, that was, that was kind of, that was, that was wild. But, um, it, I mean, just the, also the ideas of, uh, uh, of regulation programs and, and um, constitutions being rewi- rewritten, uh, that's that's terrifying. And that was discussed in this episode as well. And what was it that happened uh, politically in 2010 in Haiti that led, I think you mentioned um, like 20,000 Haitians ended up uh, stateless. It, it, and this yeah. was just a recent thing that occurred. 
Yeah, so the Dominican Republic, um, for a variety of different reasons, is trying to normal. They call it normalize to normalize their immigration system, okay. basically to to clamp down. Um, it's one of many expressions around the world of governments saying, "Hey, we need to fortify what our country means and what it." And, and immigration is a big part of that for a lot yeah. of people. Um, outsiders coming in change the nature of a nation, according to of these people, and, and therefore. They need to make sure they're controlling who comes in and out of the country, which actually, to me, is a totally fine endeavor. A sovereign state is allowed to do that. Sure, of course. Um, what the, the issue here is that um, it used to be that if you were the son or daughter of a, an illegal immigrant, you would become a citizen, like in, here in the United States. If, if someone comes from El Salvador illegally but then has a child, that child is a, is a citizen. That's mm-hmm. how it was in, in the Dominican Republic. Yep. So a lot of illegal immigrants from Haiti went into the Dominican Republic, had children, had families, be integrated into Dominican life. Those children were citizens, and uh, it was fine. You know, there was still overt discrimination and, and racism in the society and amongst the people, but the, legally these people were fine. You know, mm-hmm. they, they were they were considered citizens. And um, in 2010, they changed the... Uh, Constitution. They basically retroactively uh, strike uh, took, said all the people who actually were born here, um, going all the way back to 1929 or something. Mm-hmm. All those people actually are now not citizens. We're changing the law to that that idea of being born to an illegal immigrant. You're now not a citizen, and it's retroactively applies to everyone. So all of these people. I think it's actually. I could be wrong. I'm kind of dusty on the stats here. I think it's closer to like 150 or 200,000 oh, wow. uh, uh, Dominicans of Haitian descent yep. became stateless. stateless. That's crazy. And uh, and they a lot of them were thrown back into Haiti. Living in they camps, gave them yeah. a, an opportunity to put themselves on a register to start to go through this process mm-hmm. of getting citizenship. A lot of people didn't even have the paperwork to even start that register, so they, couldn't, they were excluded from it. So anyway, it, it was a structural, highly condemned, structural situation uh, under the guise of controlling immigration and yeah. normalizing immigration. But the, the, the true effect of it was to exterminate these illegal immigrants and their, and their children who were citizens. Yeah. And that, that's been highly criticized by, by the entire world. And, uh, yeah, I, I think you show um, uh, our mayor here in New York uh, criticizing it in, in, in some of the footage. But that's just, I mean, it's... It's that just blew my mind. That's crazy. But so there's no real way to um, kind of segue smoothly into episode two because it is it's such a different location as you were talking. And that's kind of intentional. You know, I want this to be the, the through line is borders. Yeah. But borders are everywhere and they have different flavors wherever you go. Absolutely. And this one dealt with the Arctic in Russia. And it was uh, this one, you know, I, you know, I, I care a lot and I talk a lot about climate change and this kind of comes into play here. And. And not only how it's going to affect us down the line, but how it uh, uh, it affects us and is pertinent today. And, and while um, while our current government in the United States is denying the problem, other countries, particularly as pointed out in this episode by you, uh, uh, in Russia, are taking notice and noticing that the Arctic uh, Ocean's ice has melted and there's a new accessibility. And um, Russians, as you show, the Russian uh, interest in this area is peaking and and um, and and what do they have to gain? Can you tell us a little bit about what 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 why they're so um, why they're putting so much energy into the region? Yeah, it's interesting that uh, climate change is often framed as this disaster. You know that it is going to be this idea of um, you know really 
terrible outcomes for a lot of people, um, whether it's sea levels or or changing weather, extreme weather, whatever. For Russia, they see this as a big opportunity because what it means is that an ocean, a new ocean is being created at their doorstep. Mm Russia has never really had access to big swaths of ocean because the ocean that they've had access to is frozen Mm -hmm. all the time. And so an ocean isn't very useful when it's, when it's frozen. And so the Arctic kind of been ignored by the world until recently that every year the ice melts faster and more extreme and then it refreezes. But then the next year melts even more to the point where now um, Chinese container ships can go through this new ocean uh, for large amounts of the summer. Now, when, when, it, when the ice is at its lowest point, they're able to go through and make a trip uh, to these Western markets and cut, you know, weeks off of their trip um, in order to make uh, the, the the commerce more, you know, more fluent between the places. And so there's this huge economic opportunity from a shipping standpoint. Russia also sees this as a an, a uh, resource chase too. Mm-hmm. There is. Uh, oil and gas under the Arctic. Yeah, I think you said thirty um, percent of the world's unknown natural gas. That's crazy. Yeah, is is an estimate by yep. the uh, Geological Association mm-hmm. here in the United States um, that thirty percent of the untapped reserves are up there. There's minerals and you know mines up there that mm-hmm. are untapped. And, and Russia, who has a lot, who has a big energy mining operation all over the country. Um, a lot of those mining operations are drying up out in Siberia, a lot of that natural gas that they've depended on for a long time. And that is a big deal because that's, they have a lot of leverage um, in, with, a, with, the, with their energy supply that mm-hmm. they give to, that they export. And so they're seeing this as almost a promise for the future. As yeah. our energy declines domestically, uh, we have new reserves that are opening up. That's just one of the many facets. The other one is military. Yep. They Russia, of course, likes to flex their muscles in this very kind of posture way, in this macho way, and especially the, the current uh, President Putin it really loves that tactic of showing the world that that Russia is powerful. And the Arctic represents a way to do mm-hmm. that. As it gets more attention, for for Putin to be able to say, we have you know this many military bases, and we do these training exercises, and we have this many nuclear submarines and all these things mm-hmm. in that region, what he's saying is, look, this is our neighborhood yeah. and you should respect that as it gets more and more attention. Absolutely. Definitely flexing muscles in a way. Yeah, it was, I mean, the whole episode, uh, there was so much to, to learn. I mean, you know, you talk about soft power a bunch and and then there's insightful information about uh, the continental shelf and and you know you you're even at one point uh, wielding an explosive uh, proof camera. That was that was, that was, that was <laughs> yeah. Nice. There's this interesting uh, coal mining town on this weird island that kind of going on the theme of borders doesn't have any borders. It actually belongs to dozens of different countries yep. under this treaty that says that dozens of countries can be there and even exploit the resources there. None of those countries are allowed to have any sort of military. Technically, it belongs to Norway, but it blurs the line of what sovereignty is because you have all these different countries that are there, and, and a lot of countries are there, usually for research stations. But Russia, in its attempt to continue to project, has a, a coal mining operation there. It doesn't make any money. It loses money. It's subsidized mm-hmm. by the government. Yep. But they, they have this little town and this coal mine 
in order to uh, basically say, look, we have a presence here and yeah, we're kind of projecting our, not in a military way, but in the soft power way. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it's a really peculiar spectacle because you have all these Russians that live there. And again, they're not making money for anyone. They're just there as placeholders for the Russian government and, and broader Russian interests. Yeah, yeah. No, it's it's absolutely fascinating. And uh, your late night hikes look pretty amazing as well. A, a lot <laughs> yeah, of... late night hikes uh, <laughs> oh, that happen goodness. to be look like sunset. You know, it's uh, it's a crazy phenomenon to be up at the top of the world in summer if you have that where light, yeah. it, the sun is setting. It feels like for seven or eight hours it just is always setting. It's just, it just stays right next to the horizon and it will, it kind of blows your mind. You feel like you're in like the twilight zone. Yeah. It must feel completely, completely surreal. Um, episode three was equally as fascinating. Um, it's an episode, uh, about, uh, a North Korean bubble in Japan, a a community of about 150,000 Koreans live in there and they're essentially living life as a North Korean, um, in Japan. And it's like this, uh, this bubble community and uh you know it, well i guess i guess the question is how how did that bubble come to be and that so it all started back in the in the japanese empire japan basically used to take over big swaths of east asia mm-hmm. that was like their that was their thing in the early 1900s they were expanding they were very powerful um and one of the places that they took over was the peninsula of korea which was one Region. It wasn't divided like we know it today. It was yeah. just Korea. Yep. No, no, and yeah. so they, they took that over and brought over a lot of Koreans to Japan to work and to serve in the military. And they brought over a lot of women to serve as, uh, you know, comfort women on the front lines, um, essentially for the soldiers. They, so they used them like a lot of colonizers do. They, they used people for different means. Mm-hmm. Once Japan lost that giant empire, i.e. when they lost World War II, um, they lost all of that territory, and Korea was then split up between the victors, the victors being uh, the, U- the the USSR, the Russia, what we know as Russia today, and the United States was another victor. They split it up. USSR said, we'll take the north and establish something here. You take the south, uh, you establish something there mm-hmm. in the United States. And there was kind of a conflict there as the Cold War was ramping up. Well, while that all was happening, there were still a bunch of Koreans left in Japan. Some went back to the peninsula, but a lot stayed in Japan and kind of made a life there because they'd been there for many years. And so as soon as the Korean Peninsula was divided between this pro-Soviet North and this pro-American South, the Koreans in Japan were like, wait, we were just Koreans, and now we have to decide, are we, are we South Korean or are we North Korean? And a lot of them chose South Korean. But a lot of them were like, this North Korean regime actually seems way better. They're sending us money. They're helping us build schools. Mm-hmm. They're helping us keep our Korean identity alive. And at that time, uh, Kim Il-sung, who was the founder of North Korea, yep. um, was, was sending all sorts of support to this community in Japan. And so they were like, of course we're going to decide with the, with the North. They're, they're helping us as we're kind of oppressed in the society and so they be, they became north koreans and back then north korea wasn't nearly as crazy as it is today in fact south korea was even poorer and north korea was actually the richer of the two uh-huh. and, and so it was actually a rational decision it was kind of i, I put myself in those shoes if i were in 1960 yeah, you might choose that. I, I would be like i'd choose kim il-sung like mm-hmm. he seems like a pretty cool guy and like <laughs> establishing this sweet socialist republic like mm-hmm. i'm into that um and 
then things, I mean, we know the rest of the story. North Korea yeah. turns crazy, turns mm-hmm. this hermit kingdom, turns into this oppressive place. But that fondness, that affinity, that connection to uh, the, the Kim regime and North Korea as a symbol of support is still in the hearts of these people. Yeah. And the schools and those institutions that that he, Kim Il-sung, uh, donated to and built in Japan still exists like those institutions still exist and they still have his fingerprints all over it and so there's this weird bubble of north koreans in japan who very closely identify with north korea even though they don't live there and they've never lived there yeah that's so that's i mean that's that was mind-blowing to me and also it just shows uh that that borders can be defined as different things they they in this case they were yeah, the border was made of culture, language, and ideology. An example, and, and these are your words, how uh, they could be in our minds, live in our minds as they do on maps. And that was, that was wild. And it also just shows the complexity of so many, so many of these uh, issues that you tackle. And um, you showed both sides real well on that one, too. And just because, you know, uh, you know, there was, it's, I don't know, there was the people who didn't want to, uh, you stay there, and I don't know. It's just a great it's, job. It's, it's, there's a lot going on there. A lot. Like, it was really uh, it, it a was, lot of pulling back and forth. And I felt that personally while yeah. I was there in terms of like I don't, I don't obviously sympathize with North Korea. Totally. But I, North, I, these people are also victimized. These, these North Koreans are victimized in Japanese society. Yep. And so I sympathize with them, but they sympathize with this horrible regime. It, totally. it really starts to tug at all sorts of these categories that you want to create. And that, to me, is a really healthy thing for, for me, at least, to continue to kind of dismantle some of those easy categories to show that identity isn't as neat as, like, good versus bad. Yeah, you know, absolutely. There's, there's so many yeah, different yeah. Uh, dimensions to that. And I think this story highlights it probably better than any other because of the peculiar situation there. Absolutely. You could tell you took the effort to really uh, show both, a lot of different angles on that and perspectives, so it's really helped. And, you know, that's what, you, what your series does such a good job of is, is kind of showing in a, in an easily understood um, way complex situations and I mentioned earlier how you know we a lot of these current events come up episode four deals with Mexico and Guatemala and uh, border crossings and the episode helped me actually get my head around the humanitarian crisis in Central America and and how it relates to the current news uh, with the with the so-called uh, immigrant caravan and and how these people are are fleeing, you know, from war and in need of of serious help. What uh, what was it like being around the the mog- migrants uh, that were that were searching so hard for for a better life? Yeah, that to me was the biggest um, eye opener. And in, in all these stories, was being with the people. You know, reading from afar, you can you can create opinions and thoughts and ideas and empathy, yep. but there's nothing like being there and hearing people say. They burned my house down. Yeah, this and one was heartbreaking. Me. Yeah, it, it really was. And yeah, it, and the it, Honduras father crying at one point. We're like, really? Okay. Yeah, it was. It was real. It's really, really real, yeah. and it um, and it and it makes me feel. You know, the, the, the crisis in Central America that's having all these people flee really reframes the conversation of immigration from the buckets that we usually think of of you know, drugs, and there's all this drug and terrible drug smuggling, and that should be enforced or, or um, you know, blocked. And then there's the other bucket of economic migrants, people who are leaving their country because, you know, there's not a lot of economic opportunity. This is a different camp, and it should be treated differently. Yes. This is people 
who are not safe in their own country and literally fear for their lives and, and have a very credible threat to their lives. And we as the world have signed all these conventions that say, yes, those people are treated differently. We as the world, basic humanity dictates that we treat those people differently. We give them protection. Mm-hmm. And what I learned through this is that while once they get to the United States, we often do, there's obviously a lot of failures in that system of how we protect those people. Asylum seekers is what we call them. Yep. There's a lot of flaws in that problem, in that process, but we do a pretty good job of, of at least giving someone a space and, and, and a space to talk about their issues and, and make the case. Yeah. Um, obviously, I have a lot of critiques, but the bigger critique I have is that the United States is uh, – way of stopping people from even getting to the border where they have to give them this process is by sending a bunch of money and supplies to Mexico and saying, Mexico, do your part in stopping these people from getting to us because they have to pass through your country in order to get to our country. Mm -hmm. So the U.S. did that in 2014. As soon as there was a lot of Central Americans starting to come to our borders, they said, we're going to have Mexico step in and crack down on these people. That was in the point where um, non-Mexican uh, immigrants passed for the first time. Yeah, for the Mexican first time. In, yeah. There was more there was more Central Americans coming to the border than Mexicans and that had never happened. And it was because of this these wars that are happening in, in Central America, Nicaragua and Honduras and El Salvador. Yeah. Um, and and Guatemala, yeah, mm-hmm. all these countries were just terrible things. So so that's when the US was like, we need to somehow stop the flow and I mean, you can watch the episode and see all the different mechanisms they used to do that and the, and the outcomes that occurred because of yeah. that crackdown, how it made it more dangerous for migrants. They didn't stop coming. That's the thing. It's like yeah. it didn't actually deter anyone. It just made things a lot worse for those who were coming, those who were already fleeing a very violent situation. Yeah. It's, uh, at one point, uh, like I mentioned, how this was a heartbreaking heartbreaking one. 40,000 children entered into Mexico in 2016. and. Uh, looking for protection, looking for help, and I guess one percent, only one percent applied for protection. It's yeah, it's pretty dire. And Mexico has signed all of those same conventions. You know, yeah. like that they they say we're protectors as well. We will protect anyone who's fleeing for their lives. But yeah, when you have forty thousand children yeah. entering your country looking for uh, protection, and one percent actually get asylum status, yeah. you clearly. They're, they're not actually complying with these conventions they've signed. Not, not by any means. But So episode five took us to, uh, to one of the highest borders on Earth in uh, Nepal and, and Himalaya Mountains. It's, uh, and we, we were brought upon a place where people sought out to seek refuge from borders. Uh, non-state spaces is what this one's about. And, and, and I, I didn't even know about the... It's the people of Zomia is... Um, what were the focus of it's a range of mountains where people live without the help of government or states. And that was fascinating and inspiring. And I actually kind of saw it as an example of how people could live in uh, like health and harmony without a centralized government. Um, were these, I was question curious, were these communities flourishing without, without a formation of state was they were doing okay. Right. Yes, certainly. And and it, and it comes down to your definition of flourishing or thriving for um, thousands of years these communities who, again, in, like you said, intentionally went into the mountains uh, to flee because either they were being persecuted by the government or they were, you know, a, a minority. Mm-hmm. They, they fled and you have this patchwork of, of languages and, and communities deep in these mountains that have thrived. They've developed lifestyles that um, are sustainable. They don't need the constructs of 
broader society and broader economies and and connection that we're all used to and that the, most of the world is is informed by it. and so certainly they were able to survive in harsh conditions and able to develop you know a peaceful lifestyle that that didn't require some of the terrible byproducts of slavery mm-hmm. and you know taxes famine um, you know, pandemics, all of these things that are the result of humans' desire to create bigger and bigger and bigger groups that all live together, they were able to escape some of those things. Yeah. Now, now yeah. we're in a world where a lot of those things are being solved for in certain ways. Um, and obviously we're far away from that, but, there, but there's great prosperity um, in, in the, what the global economy has done. Mm-hmm. And in that way, these people, and this is kind of the crux of the story, is even though they've lived away from borders for many years, as the borders and as the state forces slowly encroach and make them their way into the mountains, people are half or, you know, embracing that and saying, yeah, I would love to have a tractor instead mm-hmm. of a plow. I would love to have cash-based economy instead of having to trade you know, my alfalfa from my field, like people are actually embracing that because they're rational economic actors and they they want a better, more comfortable life. But with that also comes the erosion of um, a lot of these traditions, a lot of these traditional lifestyles and the people who are still stuck in those traditional lifestyles. I talked to some yak herders. Yeah. The nomadic family. That's wild. Yeah. 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 They just, they just move around the region hurting their yak and Mm -hmm. having their yak. Just follow the herd. That's, a, that's yeah. how they decided that's, where to that's, live. That's the lifestyle. Yeah. And, and they, they were able to fit into the economy and, and the, the, the society of the mountains without the state. But now that the state is there and there's cash and there's money coming from China and there's goods coming from China, they don't fit in anymore. And now yeah. they're the losers. And they would love to be uh, they would love to be able to participate and have a house and settle down. Sure. But the there, there's going to be a lot of losers in this transition from non-state space to the um, – kind of the encroachment of these state concepts that this culture, these cultures are not super used to. Yeah, absolutely. Another instance too, where you showed both sides, uh, you know, people who weren't going to fit in and people who, you know, these, like there's a road that was being built in, um, you know, after China put up a fence on the border with Nepal that was making life easier and better for many. So totally. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's a mixed bag. And I, I went in, uh, again, with this notion of kind of demonizing the state forces and saying, look at these state forces eroding the culture and like how terrible that all these beautiful old cultures are being dumbed down by, uh, by you know, capitalism. Yep. And, and, you know, I'll look at all the smog from all these vehicles on the road. Um, that, of course, was my like, like privileged mindset of being able to, to, look at and, and, and almost uh, glorify these old cultures as quaint and, and pure and without realizing that these people themselves actually are excited about these changes. They're not, they, they're the victims in a lot of ways, but they're also the benefactors. And, and that is a hard, from someone who does want to glorify those old cultures and, and retain those old cultures yeah. from the comfort of my living room, yeah. <laughs> I had to come to terms with the fact that these are the people living on the front lines, they're going to decide for themselves how they balance their old traditions with the incoming economic opportunities. It's not my place to to try to impose some like, some like idealistic view on that. Romanticism of uh, the the times before. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, 
You took us from the uh, one of the highest borders to Europe's most fortified border in uh, Morocco in episode six, where it was uh, discussed in Spain and Morocco, and it it focused on a, a piece of land that, while in Africa, is actually a piece of Europe, and it and it featured uh, an intense border wall, one that uh, our president right now would be certainly jealous of. That thing was <laughs> yeah, I totally would. That was that was something else. Um, but yeah, so. Uh, the 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 extremes that the migrants um, in Morocco were, were going through to to get across this border and you know how they charged on mass and and it, it was it was really intense what they what they were willing to do uh, how just how bad is the situation there what 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 I mean they're obviously fleeing from the South Africa yeah uh, yeah a lot of people are coming from you know, Sub-Saharan Africa, from mm-hmm. Cameroon, from um, all these places that are not really, I mean, they're kind of in the region, but they've come a long way. Yeah. And this place particularly is a magnet um, for migrants because it is a gateway into Europe. It's the only piece of land that uh, has a has a land border with Africa. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's a lot of ways to get into Europe through the sea, but those are very dangerous. And so people think this might be safer if they can come to this little tiny piece of land. It's a holdover from colonial times. And if they can jump over and just step their feet on that soil, they're in Europe technically. And they, they are again so brought in and and treated as asylum seekers or whatever. They have to be processed. And so a lot of people see that as the goal. If I can just step my shoes over this, this fence and touch that piece of land, I am in Europe. And the Spanish have made it very, very difficult to do just that. Yeah. I mean, this is a tiny, tiny piece of land. Like this is this is like a town of like a few hundred, a few like maybe I think it's like fifty thousand people. Yeah, I think you said eighty six thousand, and it's yeah, Melilla, right? Yeah, it's like, it's like a small little place, and it feels very Spanish. Yeah, it looks then, yeah, it looked like Spain when I was there. Yeah. Parts of the town, mm-hmm. and you see this wall and it's not just one wall it's seven layers of walls and i can diagram it yeah you know barbed wire ditches flexible fences that are harder to climb but these what these guys do is it's usually guys because um they are able to like swarm and climb and do all this stuff together and they like they band together to do this Mm -hmm. um they they do it in hundreds they gather like 150 or 200 people and they all do it at the same time to overwhelm the guards so that a few of them will make it over, yeah. even if most of them get caught. Yeah, a lot of them are sacrificing um, themselves, so just some get through. Yeah, and and calling back to what happened in the Mexico situation, mm-hmm. where the U.S. paid Mexico to do some of its yep. dirty work, a uh, stopping there, yeah. migrants, exact same dynamic is happening here. Spain and the EU are paying Morocco. Uh, they have a very tight relationship, and, and they effectively pay them to be their migration managers to yep. do to be the front line the buffer to stop these people and the moroccans have much less scrutiny over how they treat these migrants and so yep. the outcomes you can imagine there are uh, much more extreme in terms of the human use of uh, yeah pretty heavily so yeah it's a pretty it's a pretty ugly situation in terms of how these treated mm-hmm. but it's not an easy situation to solve you know unless you're for open borders if it, yep. it's it's a really ugly situation in terms of the human outcomes the mm-hmm. suffering and such but it's not an easy one to solve either um even with the most liberal policies of openness and connection this is just a situation a lot of these are economic migrants who who are going to europe for economic reasons yeah. not necessarily asylum and they um 
there's a lot of them because there's a lot of really poor countries in South in Sub-Saharan Africa that that produce very dire circumstances, and, and these people come to this little piece of land uh, to try and look for a better life, and, and they go through some pretty terrible things in the process. Yeah, I mean the series as a whole uh, does does just such an amazing job of really letting. Uh, viewers know um, just how, how tough so many people have and, you know, the extremes they'll go to, to get a better life for themselves and them, for their family. And uh, I think you point out towards the end of the last one, there's a record number of displaced people throughout the world and in need. And yep. it's just, it's, it's, it's really amazing. That's why the series is so, so um, special in that way. It's, it's eye-opening. What, uh, is, are, are there going to be more episodes coming? Is there going to be season there two? There are. So Fantastic. Very soon I will be announcing... Um, a second, I don't want to call it a season yeah. because it's a little bit, it's a little different in terms of its format, but okay. it's, suffice it to say Borders is coming back and Great. I'll be doing the same thing, going to border regions and diving into interesting topics and looking for interesting people and communities and trying to make sense of it all and explain the, the macro context behind it all. So Borders 2 coming soon. Fantastic. Good. We'll be safe out there. Keep, uh, Keep telling these stories. They're so important. I mean, I, I'm blown away by the thing. I mean, I'm, I'm so excited to, to you know, share this, this series and push it more and let people know what you're doing is incredibly important. And I love how you explain things, uh, you know, visually and verbally in, in a way that's incredibly, um, you know, understandable. It's really, it's, it's, it's important work what you're doing. So uh, keep it up. And thank awesome. you for making the time. I really appreciate it. Yeah, Mike. of course. Thank you, Michael. I really appreciate it. Glad to be on the show. Yeah. And I think, I'll, uh, go on. I'll plan to I'll plan to uh, to uh, hit stop on this recorder and send you the uh, the file from my end. Fantastic, so you've got it, and you can let me know if you need any info from me um, uh, regarding anything else. Happy uh, to provide whatever. Awesome, I'm going to be providing links for everybody to uh, uh, you know get to all the videos on YouTube and and everything there. So thank you everyone out there for uh, taking another trip with us uh, beyond the margin. Osiris. This podcast is in the loop, the Legion of Osiris podcasts. What does that mean? Osiris is a community of great music and culture podcasts. If you like this one, go check out others at osirispod.com and get in the loop. Osiris is partnered with Relics Magazine at relics.com. Across the margin podcast.